0: Your podcast Hey there everybody and welcome back Today we are reading Hellblazer number 6 But before we get into that Just a bit of catch up uh, On the last issue John was in America And he went to a town called Liberty, Iowa Where all the people in the town had lost their boys In the Vietnam War And they had all recently become converts to the resurrection crusade, which is like a Christian pyramid scheme where you can send them money. And then if you do enough for the church, I guess, I don't know, you work your way up and you can get your prayer request focused on during their TV announcements. And this will supposedly make your prayer come true. And what the townsfolk's prayer was of Liberty, Iowa was to have their boys come home. So by some unexplained supernatural phenomenon, uh, that actually happens. The Vietnam vets come home, but they come home like as if they were still in Vietnam fighting this war. And they end up reliving and recreating their final moments in Vietnam with their parents in this town. And John just happened to be here. He actually witnessed all of it. He could not do anything to stop most of the stuff going on. But now John knows the Resurrection Crusade is not some crazy christian cult to be ignored he needs to focus on them as well as the damnation army and that's like the satan side of this battle and we learned about them in issue four when one of their acolytes kidnapped john's niece and almost killed her and we left the last issue with john saying he's got to look into both the damnation army and the resurrection crusade so first things first with issue number six we got the cover we see John is struggling in between two halves of a stone tablet that seems to have broken in half. And there's a symbol on each half. The top one is the resurrection crusade symbol, where it's got like the sword of the spirits in a blue circle. And then the bottom half of the tablet is a red square with an upside down burning cross. And like I said, John's face looks like he's concentrating very hard as this tablet shatters. And we can also see that this is written by Jamie Delano with art by John Ridgway. And we start on the first page in the middle of London where some kids that are part of the gang we've seen before named the British boys are throwing Molotov cocktails at the front of a corner store that is owned by a Pakistani man. And as we see them do this, the narration says, it's Kenny's turn to light it, his brother Wayne's to throw. They all run into the sniggering light, shriveled hearts warmed by the splash of fire. Then we see the Pakistani owner of the corner store come out with a fire extinguisher to put the flames out. And he yells to the boys across the streets, mad boys, Nazis. And the narration continues. It's midweek. They're skint and bored. No dole till Friday. No soccer till the weekend. On Saturdays, Wayne and Kenny fight for Arsenal. Cole and Keefe wear Chelsea's colors. If they meet then on the streets, It'll be knives and boots, kicking and slashing each other into the hospital or worse. But for now, they're united against their common foe. The British boys are on patrol. Off through the canyon streets, I hear sirens circle, screaming like carrion birds. Hmm. Ask not for whom the banshee wails. So as the British boys walk away pumping their fists like they're having a grand old time, we see John Constantine leaning against a wall on a street. I should mention, it is nighttime if you didn't get that already. And I don't think I've described the British boys before yet, but if I did, I'm just going to recover it real quick. They're just four white kids who are wearing jeans with like red suspenders underneath that, and then they have like jean jackets that all say British boys on the back of it. And they all have shaved heads so they're kind of like skinheads, I guess. And how it said before that two of them support Arsenal and two of them support Chelsea. Those are actually football teams or soccer teams. And like John said in the narration, There's two that support Arsenal, two that support Chelsea, and they have tattoos representing that, along with some other tattoos that are pretty racist. There's one that says SS, so that's like the symbol from the Nazis. So when the Pakistani owner was yelling at them, he was not exaggerating. So we cut to a little while later where the boys have walked wherever they're going and they're just hanging out on a corner. And one of them is saying, ha, made that bastard shout, eh? And another says, still, they like it hot, don't they? Then they stop talking as someone walks down the street and catches their attention. They begin to follow him, and the narration says, British boys hate Pakistanis, and wogs, and yids, and lefties, and queers. Queers should be exterminated. So as the British boys follow the man who is walking, they watch him go into a public restroom. And I guess, I'm not sure if this is right or not, but I'm taking a guess, that maybe this is a place back in the 80s where people would meet to have sex if they were gay, which is why I think the British boys were hanging out in that area to watch people who were potentially gonna go into that restroom. And as they're walking by it, we see across the street, John just happens to be smoking against a wall and he sees the boys as they walk by as the man is going a little bit ahead of them into the restroom. And John calls out to them, oi oi, what are the Hitler youth up to now? But they don't respond to him because they're on a mission, I guess. Uh, they're putting on some studded gloves that look like they would hurt very bad if he got punched with them. And the narration continues. With his mates beside him, Kenny feels hard and sharp. He pulls on his fighting glove and becomes Iron Fist, the Avenger. It's shaping into a good night. And then the boys enter the restroom a couple seconds after the man, and John's narration continues. Most gays that have more sense than to come cottaging in this manner. Poor bastard's gonna get a right kicking. Then John begins to walk from his side of the street and he begins to follow the British boys who are following the supposed gay man. And as they follow, the narration says, British boys hate queers most of all. Queers are filth, hanging around bogs, messing around with kids, spreading diseases. Then we get a three-quarter splash page of the British boys coming into the restroom all aggressive and yelling, all right, you stinking queer. Hope you like rough trade. But the man they followed turns around and we see he is not a man at all. He is actually a demon of some kind. He is humanoid in shape, but he has red skin. He's got some pointy ears. He's got yellow eyes that are like cat's eyes. He's got sharp pointy teeth. And he also has really long fingers that have sharp long fingernails on them. And he was actually hiding all of this underneath a black trench coat which is why the boys didn't notice before this moment. So the demon turns around as the boy finishes his question of, do you like rough trade and answers, oh yes, please, the rougher, the better. And we see on this page also that the name of this issue is extreme prejudice. And as we turn the page, we get glimpses of what's going on in the bathroom. We see the demon attack the boys. He's biting them. He's tearing them apart with his bare hands. And he kills all four of them. And as he does, the narration is saying, it's rough all right. A red hurricane scatters them. A scarlet fury pounds them into cold porcelain walls. Consciousness running from the tiles of his mind. Kenny remembers the time he put the canary in the Cuisinart. And I'm assuming that means that Kenny at one point put a bird in a microwave? And that those were his last memories as he was being torn apart by a demon. So then we cut to the outside of the public restroom where John is waiting for a moment, and he's hesitating because his narration explains, I hate violence, but you can't pretend it's not happening, can you? After all, it could be a mate getting the battering, like Ray Mondi. And this is the first time we're hearing about Ray, but he is a gay friend of John's. And I guess that's what breaks him out of his hesitation is he thinks, what if these kids were beating up Ray? So he sees some blood coming out from under the door and that's all he needs. He throws a cigarette on the ground and he says, here we go then. And then he bursts in like he's going to save the man. But as he walks in, he is taken aback by the amount of carnage and destruction inside because the entire bathroom is torn apart. The stall partitions have been completely torn down. The sinks and the toilets are torn off the walls. They're spraying water everywhere. There are no people in here anymore. And there's just blood all over the walls, all over the ceiling. And on that ceiling written in blood is the words Damnation Army. And as John takes this all in, he exclaims, Struth, looks like a bloody Ralph Steadman drawing. And if you don't know what Struth is, it is a British word that means literally just, I'm surprised. So John looks around for a bit at the mess and his narration says, five came in, none came out. And then he looks down and he sees, I guess a cover for the sewer drain. And it looks like it's been moved. And he says, must've gone down there. Hmm, no bloody chance, not in me good coat. So he wants to find out what happened, but he doesn't want to go into the sewer. So he just walks out of the restroom, like nothing happened, trailing blood behind him with his footprints. And his narration says, they even signed their name to it. Same bunch who had Gemma. Looks like the British boys weren't as lucky as her though. And John doesn't know it, but he actually got very lucky because the demon is actually waiting at the bottom of the sewer grate that John decided not to go down. And the demon is waiting to see if anyone's gonna come down to follow him. And when no one does, he takes the four bodies of the British boys And he begins walking through the tunnels of the sewer. And as he does, the narration says, why is it always the most primitive stupid zones that are strategically important? Earth is such a provoking place. Nergal's sudden flare of anger had badly broken the new recruits. But improvisation is the essence of guerrilla warfare. The wreckage can still be put to use. Then we see Nergal with the bodies in hand reach a water stream, and there's nowhere else he can really go other than to jump in. So he does, and the narration continues. He likes working underground. Covert action is his craft. Subversion, destabilization, disinformation, the corruption of hearts and minds, unsettling the human herd, tickling awake the cancers of despair, stampeding the mass mind to the brink of the abysmal void. This is the art of demons. So Nargal swims for a while, and then he comes to an open area where he surfaces, And we see, this is a very large room with a bunch of people in it. And they all look like they've been down here for a while. Their clothes are kind of gross and covered with dirt and sewage. And there's also like torches that are set up so everybody has light, And they're made of human skulls that are on top of a stick and the heads have the tops cut off so you can fill them with whatever you're gonna burn and then you can light it. And as Nergal surfaces, the people turn to him like they've been waiting. And the narration says, in deep cover, Nergal's damnation army gnaws at the roots of life with horror. Then we cut to John up above, and he is inside of a pub called The Queen's Arms. But he's not here to drink, he's actually here to make a phone call. And his narration says, In the pub, the heavy fog of smoke and beer smothers the clinging reek of the slaughterhouse. This damnation army keeps poking up heads like toadstools. I can't be the only one who's noticed. So as John reaches for the phone at the bar, He yells out to the bartender, Large Bloody Mary, please, love. Mind if I use the phone? So John makes a call as the bartender gets his Bloody Mary, and we don't hear the other side of it, but we hear John's side, and he's saying, Come on, Tony. Call yourself a crime reporter? I said, what's Fleet Street's word on the damnation army? Do I have to get heavy? I've got enough dirt on you to keep the news of the screws going for weeks. That's more like it. Then John's narration says, It's worse than I thought. Seems like there's links right across the board. Bizarre suicides, random grotesque assassinations, cannibalism, mass public murder, weird sex attacks. And under this narration, we get kind of a funny panel of John still on the phone while the bartender is waiting to be paid and he pulls out his wallet and apparently he doesn't have any money and she's pointing to a sign behind her that says, we hate to give offense so please don't ask for credit. And as John looks at his wallet and realizes he doesn't have any cash, he says, Struth. Then he continues his conversation with Tony on the phone saying, All right, don't get excited. I get the picture. How come the story's not all over the front page? Yeah, that figures. See ya. And John's narration says, "D notice eh? Government wants it all kept quiet. Special branch and the anti-terrorist squad on the case. They're on the wrong track there. This isn't anarchy, it's chaos. And even though John didn't have any money, apparently he was able to get the one drink because we see him thinking as he sips his Bloody Mary. As we turn the page, we see he has left the bar and he is walking to Zed's place and the narration says, the streets are late and dark as I make my way to Zed's place. The hollow echo of my footsteps haunt me to her door. Resurrection Crusaders, Damnation Army, Something is happening and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? I've left it too late to plan. The first moves have all been made. I'll just have to wing it. I'll start on the damnation army tomorrow. But tonight, I just want to relax. But as John gets to the top of the stairs that leads to Zed's flat, he hears people talking inside the room and they're saying, We need you, Mary. And John's narration says, Damn, she's got company. Then we cut inside the room where we see three men in the same uniforms of the people who came from the Resurrection Crusade to help Cheryl John's sister's family when their daughter Gemma was kidnapped. So they're wearing brown khaki pants with pink t-shirts, and on the shirts, there is a hand holding a sword. And there's three of them, and they're saying to Zed, you shouldn't have run away. Time grows short now. You need to prepare. And Zed looks kind of angry at them, and she's pointing at them saying, don't crowd me. I need this time on my own. I'll come when I'm ready. And they answer, we're worried that might not be soon enough. The tongues of fire have ordered us to bring you. And upon hearing that, Zed grabs a knife that's on the counter behind her and she holds it up in front of her and says, the first one of you even touches me will find himself a candidate for martyrdom. Back off. And at that moment, John comes through the door and he says, hello boys. I think you must be in the wrong place. The missionary society is next door out and the three men don't put up a fight they just begin to walk out and john says that's the way onward christian soldiers but as they leave one of them turns to zad and says we'll speak again mary and as the door slams and the men walk out john makes like a fake gun with his fingers and then blows the tip of them like he just fired shots and he says hi kid no it's not a gun in my pocket and yes i am pleased to see you But Zed is not paying attention to John. She actually goes to one of her big windows and she pulls back the curtains to make sure that they're leaving. And the three men are, but they are staring up at her as they're walking away. Kind of like they're warning her. And John asks Zed, what was all that about then? And Zed answers, don't you question me, John. You don't own me. Nobody owns me. I make my own decisions, right? And John puts up his hands and says, all right, all right. No need to bite my bloody head off. And then he goes over to her and he hugs her and he says, I'm on your side. And John's narration says, expect I'll find out soon enough. Looks like she's in with the bloody crusaders up to her neck. Mary and the tongues of fire, eh? Sounds intriguing. Then we cut back to the sewer caves where Nergal has put the bodies of the four British boys on the ground in front of his congregation. And the narration says, Nergal surveys his shock troops with pride. Handpicked and nurtured in the training. Camps of Hell's colonies. Each has had that hard, bright spark of madness waiting to be kindled into chaos fire. These are specialist explosives. Smart bombs to be planted at the chosen tension points of humanity. Enough of them will bring that structure screaming to the pit. They're hungry. See their nostrils flare as the clotted souls of the recruits dribble through his fingers into the drains of Hell. And under this narration in the panels, we see the congregation of Nergal begin to salivate and look like they want to eat the bloody mess of the British boys on the ground. And we see Nergal put up a finger like he's telling them to wait. And then he reaches down and he begins to pull the viscera and intestines out of the bodies like he's playing with them. And the narration continues. Deftly, he filters the brightest ruby gems of hate, draws out the gorgeous braided ropes of fear. Keen talons fillet the small black sacks of bigotry from the drab human clay, squashing a few stunted buds of love. So it seems that Nergal is not just tearing these bodies apart. He's doing some kind of magical surgery, but we haven't yet seen what he's doing exactly. But we do get glimpses of some of the stuff, and we can see the British boys all share one body now that has like four heads on it. And we get a glimpse of their arm, which now has... Below its elbow, three forearms with three different hands. So it seems Nergal is turning these boys into some sort of Frankenstein monster. And the narration continues. These potent essences he holds back. They are the power that will drive his raw assassin. Then he re the flesh and bone, twisting and contorting it to suit the demon's purpose. Of course, Nergal could kill the Mary with a glance. But how much funnier and more gloriously grotesque to do it with this hellbent thing. He hopes Constantine appreciates the joke, but few humans can laugh at a devil's mockery. And as Nergal finishes his sculpting of the British boys' bodies, he writes on their chest, damnation army with his fingernail, which seems to burn it into their flesh. And then the congregation and Nergal watch as this mismatched monster of British boys sits up and rises to its feet. And then it runs into the water and leaves the room like it's on a mission to do something. And as Nergal and his followers watch this, the narration says, In hell, Nergal once tormented a murderous, deceitful soul, one Sunderland. He spoke a secret language to disguise his crimes. In his world, assassination was cosmeticized. To kill was to terminate with extreme prejudice. In this case... The bizarre nomenclature is wonderfully apt. The mockery is a perfect Maleficent work of art, but stupid. To guide it to the surface, Nergal needs a certain ambience below. And just in case you didn't know, the person that Nergal said he tortured in the narration was General Sunderland, who appears in the Swamp Thing comics as one of the main big bads in Swamp Thing volume two. And he is killed at the very beginning of Alan Moore's run. And I believe that all happens in issue 20 and that's how he ends up in hell. So that's kind of a cool little Easter egg they throw in here. So at the end of that narration, it said that Nergal needed a certain ambience below to control this British boy's monster that he made. So he begins to undress and he takes off his trench coats and he says to his congregation, come close and pleasure me. Then we see his congregation remove their clothes and they begin to lay down with Nergal on the ground in the sewer and the narration continues. The cohorts cavorts instantly to his command. As the mockery walks out, they wallow over him in slick ecstasy, soothing his carcass with debauchery. Their pallid digits crawl the wasteland of his hide like exquisite suckling slugs, freeing his mind to inspire the hunt. So basically the congregation just begins to pleasure Nogal. They're kissing all over his body and rubbing him with their hands. And it looks from Nergal's face that he's quite enjoying this. And I love that as we turn the page, we cut to John and Zed inside of Zed's flat, and they're both naked on the bed, and John is giving her a massage with his hands. So it's kind of mirroring what's going on with Nergal down below. And John's narration says, My fingers thread the taut topography of flesh, running her tensions more closely with my own. And as Zed lays on her stomach on the bed, and John is massaging her, she says, That's good. Sorry I blew up before. You were an innocent bystander. And then she looks up at John and John smiles at her and says, Hmm, I don't know about innocent. Stop talking now though. Tell me later. And then he moves in for a kiss and then they begin to make love. And over the panels of this, we get some narration that says, like scientists, we fall to our experiment, exploring complex tactile formulae, tasting the arcane chemistry of sex. Sweet mystery, colliding worlds. Together, we synthesize a brief universe of peace. Then we cut to a drainage pipe in the sewer that leads to the Thames River. And out of that, we see the British boy's monster pokes its head out and it looks around to get its bearings. And the narration says, it was never as good as this before, never as close as pure. Kenny and Wayne and Cole and Keith were always mates, British boys but inside their uniform of hatred, each was isolated by fear. Understanding little, smashing all they did not understand, both fuel and defeated by their crass ignorance. Not now though, now they're bonded. Blood brothers in arms, nothing can come between them. It's all for one and one for all. Now that they have a flag to march under, they'll never walk alone. They're whole. Iron Fist the Avenger is complete. And if you remember, that is what Kenny called himself when he put the studded glove on when he was gonna beat up the gay person in the public restroom. And under all that narration, we're seeing the monster go into the Thames and then come up from the river on the other side. And it really seems to be enjoying its mission. And we get a really good shot of the monster in this sequence. The body of the monster is made up of all four boys, so it's very big and large. And the four heads of the boys are on the top where normally a single head would be but all the joints, like the the shoulders, the elbows, the knees, all seem to have multiples of those joints because the body is made up of all four of them. It also looks like the muscle strength is equal to all four of them as well. And then at both their arms at the elbows and their legs at the knees, the limbs are not singular. They're actually split into multiples. So past the elbow on the arms, you have three separate arms that are reaching out with three separate hands. And on the legs below the knee, it looks like they have four separate lower legs with feet on each leg. So we see the monster running through different areas of London until it finally reaches just outside the building of Zed's flat and its narration says, he feels good, filled with a sense of mission. For the first time ever, he has a job to do. Then we see the monster scaling the wall around Zed's building and it just so happened that right next to that wall, the three resurrection crusader men are sitting and waiting and they're talking saying, We'll have to take her soon. If we found her, the damnation army can't be far behind." And just as he says that, the wall breaks down in front of the car because the monster smashes through it. And one of the men yells out, "'Sweet Jesus, what?' But he's cut off as the monster grabs the car and begins to flip it over yelling, Then we cut to the inside of Kit's flat and they are done making love. Kit is asleep in the bed and something has just woken up John. And his narration says, One moment I'm in warm oblivion. The next, sleep scampering off on nervous little legs. What woke me? Some sound? A cry in the night? Whatever. A restlessness, born of work undone, propels me from the bed's soft trap. I've put it off too long. I don't like secrets I'm not a part of. While my lover sleeps on, I prowl the cool territory of her home looking for a closet of old bones. So John gets up and he puts on some clothes and he begins snooping around Zed's flat and it doesn't take him too long to find a book that's labeled journal on her bookshelf. And John says, aha, jackpot. But just as he's about to crack it open, all of a sudden he gets a really strange feeling and his narration says, but before I have a chance to assemble any skeletons, some nebulous quality of the night touches me. Massaging glands that tighten my chest, erect my hair. And what he's sensing is the monster outside. And we get a shot of the British boy's monster actually climbing up the side of the building to get to the third floor. And as it does, this John's narration says, I know the feeling. It's a sure thing. Something wicked this way comes. If I'd been on the ball these last few months, instead of charging about in the States, I might've had an idea what. So John gets fully dressed now that he's had this bad feeling and he gets a knife and he runs out the door that leads to the stairwell that goes down to the first floor. And as he goes down, his narration says, someone breaking in downstairs could be those God's warriors again, but I doubt it. Oh, well, the best form of defense is attack. So John thinks he's doing good. He's He thinks he's on the offense as he runs down the stairs but unfortunately he didn't realize the monster was climbing up the wall on the outside and the monster actually sees Zed in the window and then bursts through and grabs her. And of course she screams out, John, help me! And John hears this and he actually has to run back up the stairs to her flat and as he does this, his narration says, Christ, it wasn't after me at all. It wants her. And when John gets to her flat, he throws open the door and sees what's going on and he yells, "Oi!" and the monster that is pulling Zed out of the bed pauses for a second as John yells, and one of the heads recognizes John. I believe it is Kenny, because we've seen him before in the comic, uh, and he actually had a run-in with John inside of a corner store, and was told that we don't mess with John Constantine. Of course, that was when he was just a boy and not a monster, but it seems he still has those memories and feelings inside of him, and he yells out, CONSTANTINE! And then John also pauses because this monster is crazy looking and he says, Bloody Nora, I've heard of birds with a feather, but this is ridiculous. And then he begins to laugh at them and he says, What a bloody state to get into. And then the heads of the monster respond back to him saying, Hope you like hospital food, pal. What's so bleeding funny then? And as John looks at the monster, his narration says, Good question what indeed think fast John they're only bloody football hooligans they haven't got a full brain to share between them ha of course and while he was saying think fast he notices that the monster's body has a mix of all four of the boys tattoos and as they said at the beginning some of them were Arsenal fans and some of them were Chelsea fans so one arm says Arsenal and one arm says Chelsea so John thinks quick about this and he says to the monster oh it just tickles me that's all You've got one arm supporting Chelsea and the other Arsenal. And the heads look down and begin to look over their body at the different tattoos, and one says, huh? And the other says, what? And John continues, what do you do on Saturdays, lads? And John's narration says, on Saturdays, they fight the football wars. Wayne and Kenny follow Arsenal. Cole and Keith take the streets for Chelsea. These are their true colors. Then we see the heads of Kenny and Wayne are on the right side of the body and they're yelling, Arsenal! And Cole and Keefer on the left side and they're yelling, Chelsea! And then the monster begins to beat itself up and tear itself apart as the four fight for control and dominance of the soccer teams, I guess. And as John and Zed watch on in horror at this, uh, John's narration says, tribal allegiances, old and automatic, rooted in the psyche. Driven by their force, Iron Fist the Avenger turns its hatred inward, limb tears limb from limb. So as the monster begins beating itself to death, John says to Kit, come on kid, let's go while the going's good. So they run out of the building and as they're running out on the ground on the first floor, John is still kind of joking about this and he says, Struth, the ultimate fascist comes apart at the seams. Talk about divided loyalties. Great sport, football, huh? But Zed doesn't answer, she's a little bit more traumatized, and as they run to go to a payphone so they can call John's friend Chaz, John's narration says, no point in waiting to pick up the pieces. Times like this, it's best to run. A car full of dead Christians is bound to draw the heat, and I don't want the special branch on my back. It takes 20 freezing minutes for Chaz to pick us up. We tremble together, cheered by the scent of stale urine. So finally, Chaz pulls up in his taxi, and John yells out, about bloody time and chaz leans out and says where to john your place and as they get in john says nah they'll look there first take us to camden we need a safe house so chaz takes them to camden and they get dropped off in front of a store that says brick a antiques but john's surprised and kind of confused because the windows are boarded up and john's narration says ray's shop is boarded up hope he hasn't moved out But then an older gentleman leans out of the window on the apartment above that shop and says, who is it? Why don't you leave me alone? And then John looks up and sees his friend and says, come on, Ray, open up. It's me, John Constantine. I need sanctuary. And I should also mention that when Zed was attacked by the monster, she was naked and she had to cover herself with a blanket as she was running out. So that's all she's had to cover herself. So as Ray lets them in, he takes care of Zed and John's narration says, Ray looks after Zed, he's good at that. And then once Ray is done looking after Zed, he walks into the parlor room and John is there sitting and smoking. And John asks, is she all right? And Ray answers, sleeping like a child. I gave her two volumes and a mug of hot milk, poor love. And I'll describe Ray Mondi here. He's an older white gentleman, he's got gray hair. And at the moment he's wearing a large quilted house coat because obviously it was the middle of the night when John came over and he was in his pajamas. So as Ray sits down to talk to John, John says, what about you, mate? Why the boarded windows? You got trouble? And Ray answers, yes, dear boy, I have. And then he gets super serious and he says, someone's spreading rumors that I've got AIDS. Now nobody comes to the shop. The windows have been broken and I keep getting these awful phone calls. And John asks, these rumors, mate, they true? And Ray answers, Yes, John, I'm very much afraid they are. And then John walks over to Ray as Ray has his hands in his head, like he's gonna try to comfort him, but we cut away before we see that. And as we turn the page, we see it is now Dawn and John has just been sitting in the living room by himself. And his narration says, I sit till Dawn slides its gray fingers beneath the curtain. I think about fear and prejudice. I think about victims. I think about my friend Ray and my friend Zed. I consider the Resurrection Crusade and the Damnation Army, two sides of the same coin. It's flipping and spinning, but where's it all going to fall? Then John gets very startled and drops his matches that he was lighting a cigarette with as the phone on the table next to him begins ringing. And his narration says, The phone nearly stops my heart. It better not be one of Ray's hate callers. And then John answers saying, Yeah, who's this? And then we cut to Nergal on the other end saying, That you must guess, Constantine. Once before you offended me, forcing me to chastise you. Next time, I will not be so lenient. Be warned. Do not aid my enemies further. Join us. Your interests are best served in the army of the damned. And We don't hear a click or anything, but John pulls the phone away from his ear and he says, Hmm, curiouser and bloody curiouser and that my friends is the end of the issue so it looks like john is finally putting some pieces together about who's controlling the damnation army and also seeing that zed is somehow connected with the resurrection crusade so he definitely has some things to look into but we'll have to find out if he does that in the next issue so if you have any comments questions or suggestions you can email me at planes trains and comic books all one word at gmail.com and we will see you on the next one